Hi there, Field Trip listeners. Right now, it's mid-January 2020. And the question of how to ensure that every student, regardless of background, receives a high-quality education has never been more important. I think one of the ways that we can work toward that is by sharing stories. Stories of how schools are working to serve all students, provide opportunity, and come alongside those who, for any number of reasons, might not have the same advantages as others. So this month and next, we're putting out a short series on equity in education, sharing stories from leaders who are intimately involved in this. Over the next few weeks, we'll be sharing new episodes that look at equity in special education, and we'll take a detailed look at desegregation through the eyes of a teacher who was there. Today, we are revisiting a story we aired in the summer of 2018. Dr. Talisa Dixon is now the superintendent of another school district in Ohio, but when we spoke to her, she was leading the Cleveland Heights University Heights City School District. I hope you enjoy it. Having those tough conversations about race, class, our beliefs, and being able to say, we may not agree on everything, but we do agree that we want the best educational experience for our kids. Today on Field Trip, the story of two communities with one school district. It was clear that we were making decisions in isolation and not talking to all key stakeholders and seeing what was happening with the decisions that we were making and how it was impacting our students and impacting the opportunity that we were preventing all students from having. It's a story about equity and how one superintendent is working to make sure every student has the same access to a quality education. It's a real equity issue. If you do not put your best teachers with the students who have the most need, I think people think, you know, you have this outstanding teacher and we're gonna put all the best kids in that teacher's class. And I think we have to rethink that. Welcome to the podcast for leaders in education. Every other week, we bring you another story of people who are coming up with ways to tackle 21st century challenges in education with creativity, technology, data, and innovation. From Frontline Education, you're listening to Field Trip. Today, my guest is Dr. Talisa Dixon, superintendent of Cleveland Heights University Heights School District in Ohio. Dr. Dixon, it's good to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. That name, Cleveland Heights University Heights School District, often called CHUH, is an important clue to our conversation. These are two communities that share one district. Here are some numbers. Cleveland Heights has a population of nearly 50,000, Dr. Dixon said, about half of whom are minorities, mostly African-American. And students from University Heights also attend school at the district. Around 14,000 people live there. It's wealthier and over 70% white. And we only have about 700, about 800 students that attend our school district from University Heights of a district that's 5,200 students. So the majority of our students live in Cleveland Heights that attend our school district. Dr. Dixon said the school district is about 80% minority, 20% non-minority. And I asked her why that is. 
Um, one, we are fortunate to be surrounded by a lot of great schools, um, private schools, parochial schools. So there's a lot of choice in this area. And perhaps a lot of families choose those schools because private, you know, that was their experience. If they had a private school experience or a parochial school experience, and that's okay. I believe that's okay. I just want to make sure that people understand that we are a good public choice option for their for their students. So, again, a lot of students attend those other schools because of their families um, their family's choice. What effect does having an eighty percent minority? Uh, 20% non-minority breakdown. What effect does that have on your district as a whole? Hmm. Great question. Well, one thing, it, uh, a positive effect is I think kids get to learn, the non-minority students get to learn from the minority students. Um, I think that could be a positive and that we make sure that all kids are involved in various different activities and, and learning from each other. So I think that's good. Also in the community, too, because, again, the community does not reflect the the school district. So, again, you have 80 percent of minority students in the school district in a city that is primarily about 50 50 uh, percent non-minority. We are going to be talking about the issue of equity today. And I wanted to ask, why is this issue, Dr. Dixon, so important to you personally? Oh, wow. That's a great question. What, when I first began my tenure here, I noticed immediately that it seemed that there were two school districts that existed here, and one that serviced um, the high-achieving non-minority students and one that serviced minority students, and it was obvious. I would walk into the high school, for example, and I would walk into the AP classes and wouldn't see maybe one or two minority faces. And that was alarming to me. Just to be clear, you mean two school districts in effect, but within one school district? Correct. Correct. And it was a little joke in the in the district from other, not not district officials, that we had parents could actually have a private school experience within this district. And by that, they mean if, if parents chose us, they can do our gifted program and our AP program. And uh, we have a phenomenal music, instrumental and vocal music program and have access to that and not pay what you would pay for a private school. But it was also alarming when I went to the elementary schools and we had performance-based grouping. And I kept saying performance-based grouping, you know, explain to me what that is. Oh, we just divide students in reading groups and we put our advanced learners, our middle learners. And I said, hmm, that seems like tracking. Oh, no, 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 that's not tracking. It's something we've been doing for quite a while, et cetera. So, to me, it was tracking because you had students, elementary students that were grouped in their reading levels, but I always ask the question, if you want students to learn what it means to be a good reader from their peers, because students learn from their peers, then how can it be demonstrated if they continue to stay in the same group? So if my group one are the higher, high readers, I want students in group three to be paired with the students in group one, and that was not happening. 
And so it was clear that we needed to do something from my perspective. And then the second piece of that, when we started working on a strategic plan, it came out as part of the conversations during the interviews with various stakeholders, that we had a lot of inequities in the district and that the district created. And so I knew I had to do something. Prior to her arrival, CHUH had a number of superintendents over a short period of time, and I asked Dr. Dixon to talk about that. She didn't know exactly why that was the case, but thought it could have something to do with the challenges that come with serving two diverse communities. You have two communities, and you got to service the needs of both communities, and it can be it can be very very challenging. And so when I came, people wanted to. Uh, internally, it's like, okay, is she going to stay? And the community was like, oh, my gosh, is the board going to do something to make sure that this person stays? So that was that was critical. How long will the superintendent stay? <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> uh, it, it was uh, challenging at times because you meet people and they say, oh, gosh, okay, oh, my gosh, she seems pretty nice. Oh, she won't be here long. And now we're in year four. So... <laughs> <laughs> So you came into the district, you looked around, you saw that there were was performance-based grouping at the elementary level, you saw a number of other things at the high school level, and so you set about putting a strategic plan into place. Can you talk a little bit more about why that strategic plan was needed? Oh, great question. Yes. Um, I think sometimes people can come into an organization and People want them to just come in, a new leader come in and just make changes. And I always believe that this is best to assess and have conversations with people in any organization before change is, 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 is implemented. So after my first 100 days in the district, I'm meeting with people, I'm going in classrooms and just really using the first 100 days to observe what was going on in the community and what was happening in the district. I talked to my board and stated, you know, I really would like to start a strategic plan conversation. And the board really didn't, wasn't sure. They were not sure if this was the right pathway. And I just said, trust me, just trust me, let's start this conversation. They've been, let me back up, they've had strategic plans before. I think the last one may have been in, oh gosh, 2008, probably maybe 2005. So it's been some, it's been quite a while. And I just stated that this would be good for us to assess what was happening have some conversations with our stakeholders. And one, I mean, I think it would give people opportunity to to address the, the real issues. And they agreed. After some time, I, they agreed, and I secured a consultant. And we started the journey. It's about a six to seven month journey that included school stakeholders, uh, parents, students. It's about 40 or 50 people that was um uh, participants of, of this. Superintendents already have a lot on their plates. And when Dr. Dixon began at the district, hers was especially full from day one. For one, they were in the middle of a master facilities plan and were building a new high school the following year. So that was one. And then two, two see, I started in August and in October I received a letter from the state that says, oh, by the way, superintendent, you're going to have four 
schools that are in ed choice status, and that meant um, ed choice designation, rather, and that meant they had not been achieving for four years consecutively in the state, which going to give parents the opportunity to access school vouchers. So if you live near one of those schools, now you can take your um, about $6,000 and use that to be educated in another school district. And she said, okay, we really need to begin this strategic plan and have the conversations that will help us address some of these challenges. We have to start the strategic plan. We have to have these conversations. And one was no one was focusing on student outcomes. So that was evident. There were not systems in place that kept people focused on student outcomes. We had silos. I mean, we had people that were, there was no connection between HR, the educational services, the business departments. And I think in part because there were so many, so many um, different leaders. So there was no alignment there. We had great teachers, great kids, um, and great families, but no one knew what was happening. They knew that if my child was in a gifted program, here's a pathway, and they were going to be successful. Well, if my students were taking AP courses, oh, they had the best teachers, here's a pathway. And then we had a career and technical education program that I believe was just used as a dumping ground. Well, okay, the kids may not be successful, so we'll put you over here. Mm. Um, And so it, it was clear, but we still had 26 sports program. We have synchronized swimming. We have ice hockey. I mean, there was, we have lacrosse. There was so many wonderful things, a fantastic vocal and instrumental music program. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we have all of this and no connection. And it was, it, it was evident. Hmm. Talk to me a little bit about the a little bit more about the lack of equity that you saw in your district. Did, did some schools get more resources than others? Did teachers want to work in some places and not others? And what effect did that have? Yeah. So great question. Families were sharing with me that if their students were not in the gifted programs, then they didn't believe they had they were receiving a good education. And so I kind of was digging a little more and said, well, what do you mean by that? You know, well, we have the gifted students were being identified as gifted in the fourth grade, and then they were pulled from their regular peers to a self-contained program. And they believed that those students in that program had the best teachers. I said, oh, okay. And then other families were saying, well, um, African-American students didn't have the opportunities to get in a gifted program because of the criteria that were stated. Um, they believe it excluded African-American students, specifically African-American males. Two, principals shared that certain schools received all the teachers who were um, had some concerns, evaluation concerns. So we were placing um, what they call the low-performing teachers in specific schools, and those principals felt that they could never get the academic results they need because they didn't have the teachers who could really help move students. And then we had resources. So we had some principals and families said, oh, the schools on this side of town do not get as much resources as schools in another part of town. So we had all of those conversations, and I needed to dig deeper to see 
was there some evidence in this? And in every case, I found that there were evidence that was clear that we had, we were making decisions um, in isolation and not talking to all key stakeholders and seeing what was happening with the decisions that we were making and how it was impacting um, impacting our students and impacting the opportunity that we were preventing all students from having. I'm really struck by what you said earlier about siloed information and not having a connection between HR and instruction and business. Can you talk a little bit more about that, both in general, what effect that has on your people and on your students, and then what effect that has on equity in your district? Well, one equity issue, and people sometimes people don't see it as an equity issue, but staff placement can be well. It is a, a it's a real equity issue if you do not put your best teachers with the students who have the m- most need. Um, I think people think, well, you know, you have this outstanding teacher, and we're going to put all the best kids in that teacher's class. And I think we have to rethink that and said, if we have kids with some really, really with needs and some academic challenges, who is the best person who can really um, help that student? It is that experienced, great teacher. It is that person. And so we were not doing, the district was not doing a good job making sure teachers were appropriately placed in, in certain schools. And so what that did, it kind of produced buildings where you had a lot of people working at the same level. So if you had a building where you had a lot of uh, uh, low-level teachers or teachers that were performing at a lower level based on their evaluations, they were like um, sort of like complainers. Well, I don't really want to be here. These kids are very challenging. They're coming from various homes, and I can't motivate them. So you had a lot of that conversation that was happening with their principals. Well, then you will have your business department, for example, and teacher and the principal or, or teachers will say, well, I need something repaired in my building. Well, my classroom, well, that's not a priority right now at this school. Why don't we just, um, instead of putting a new ceiling fan in, oh, we just repair this old ceiling fan. Or we would go to another school and it was it became more of a priority. Well, I'm not going to fix this ceiling fan. I'm maybe a a, a brand-new air-conditioned unit, window unit would be better over here. Again, a, a, a disconnect, or I'm not going to come and repair the heating in Building 1 immediately. I'll wait until next week where another building, it was a priority. Okay, I would get someone over there hmm. today. Yeah. Um, and then resources, when you talk about the educational resources, we have some schools that were – for example, International Baccalaureate. And so it was, we are going to make these schools IB and these other schools, you know, we we may can get there at some at point, but it's best if we focus on these schools at this side of town first. So again, people making independent decisions and no one connecting together to see how these decisions were impacting within the organization, but people from outside were looking and watching. And from their perspective, we were clearly making decisions that were not good for for all students. And that brings us back to the strategic plan that the school board approved. 
and they began putting it into place. We decided that uh, we came with five strategic goals and we changed the mission statement. So that was important to the planning team that they wanted to make sure that our mission statement, one, talked about what all of our schools will provide and two, that we would include career as an option for students. And so we made that front and center in our strategic plan. So our, I'm sorry, in our strategic plan and our mission statement. So our mission statement says our schools provide a challenging and engaging education. So it's our schools. So they wanted to make sure that that meant all of our schools. And they wanted students to become, we want students to become responsible citizens and succeed in college and career. So the and career was something that was we wanted to make front and center. Then we decided on five goals, and one of those goals was um, educational approach, equity, empowerment, and opportunities. They believed that we wanted every student, we had to be front and center, every student would have opportunities to this challenging and, and engaging education. And that meant looking at things like funding and teacher placement, as well as the curriculum. You know, does our curriculum reflect the students that we serve? Mm. Um, the community may be 50-50, but our school, school district's 80% minority. And what do our materials reflect? How do we have, help make sure that our kids see themselves um, in the curriculum? And then how do we make sure that our teachers are being trained on how to teach students that look different from them. So many times people think uh, they graduate from these colleges and educational institutions and they say, oh my gosh, I'm going to be a teacher and I've learned these tools and I'm going to classroom and I'm going to teach. Great intentions. Um, But then you reflect and say, oh my gosh, so I have students with different backgrounds that may come to me not all at the same level. Same potential, but not come in the classroom at the same level. So we have to be able to give our teachers some tools to teach those students differently than may than they may have um, learned in their um, in their college educational courses. So we needed to make sure that we, we we focus on providing that professional development. So we started the journey. We also. During our contract negotiations, we have in our district eight essential trainings that all of our teachers must take, we must be involved in. So we negotiated through our contract language to have equity training as one of those essential eight trainings for all of our staff throughout the district. Dr. Dixon and her team saw this as a tremendous step, but it was only the first step. They began thinking about how to ensure lasting change. So I share with the board that it's not enough to have a strategic plan. I think that's a great start, but I believe we need to have something that will outlive the plan because your plan, you, and you, you, you focus on the work with the plan, but the plan also evolves and changes over time. It becomes a living document. But policies are lasting. And so it was important for us to say that You've had this revolving door of superintendents. Yes, I'm superintendent number five, and I would love to stay at the pleasure of the community and the board. But if things change, what can stay and outlast a, a, a superintendent or even them as board members? And that's a policy. 
So it, we started having a conversation why equity policy was needed. And I think that was almost as tough as going through the strategic planning work. Why was it so tough to have those conversations with the board? Oh, because it's interesting. those conversations were clearly about one set of data and beliefs. Was a strategic plan. I was we were able to have various conversations around various topics. So, operational resources, your staff, your parents. But when you talk about equity, it's, it's, it's a deeper conversation about people's beliefs in their actions. And I always tell a quote, oh gosh, I can't think of his name, but it was a quote. He always says, what you permit, you promote. Mm. Um, and I say that to the community all the time, you know, what we permit to happen in this district, we are promoting it if no one says anything. And we had clear evidence that that was some sort of tracking that was happening. Not intentional, I don't believe. I think it was just something that was just happening. And we had evidence that we were not placing, doing a good job placing teachers um, with students with the most need, et cetera. So how do we put something in place that addresses that? Um, And there were conversations about, well, some students come with various backgrounds, and the data showed that our white students were outperforming our black students. And some of our board members believe, well, why is that? Well, you know, are white students smarter than black students? Well, do you believe that white students are smarter than black students? Uh, let's, t- let's talk about that. Well, the data shows that the white students are outperforming the black students. Well, Okay, so we're looking at the data. So or you think that data is, is expressed that way because one set of students are born smarter than another set of students? So those were real conversations that we had to have. And, you know, why is it? And we had to look at ourselves and look at our beliefs and have an understanding that students are coming to us from various backgrounds. Families have different education experience themselves. But when they send their kids to the schools, they are sending their very best. And they're hoping that we are the ones that's going to fully educate their kids. And that is our job. Now, we do need help from our parents. We recognize that. Um, but so that was some of the conversations that we had with our board members, looking at the data, having those tough conversations about race, class, our beliefs, and being able to say, we may not agree on everything, but we do agree that we want the best educational experience for our kids in this community. And if that means that we have to have a policy that will allow us to have some check and balances, then that is the right thing to do. I want to ask how you were personally perceived during this process. Can you talk about what it was like to walk through this as an African-American superintendent who came into this community and began this initiative? What about this, this situation made this easier or harder for you? Oh, great question. Well, you know, that, that was tough. I um, I felt uh, that many of the uh, many people in the community were so glad that here's an African American 
superintendent who is coming, who can make the tough decisions, who will address these issues that they saw and they felt and they experienced and come out and just, hey, put the hammer down and say, we're going to stop this. And I believe in this community there were some um, white families that were hoping that that happened too. Uh, but my approach to that work was to this work is, is, is was different. It made me a little nervous. I can say that uh, it made me a little nervous because I didn't want to be the person who came into a community and saw things just my eyes and made decisions based on only what I saw and only what I experienced. Yeah. I wanted to make sure that I came and I listened to various stakeholders and looked at the data and, and, and had conversations with people about what things needed to change and why and how I could help lead them to that change. Because that's lasting. I believe that's lasting change. Those changes will outlive Talisa. Forced change will make people uncomfortable and will push people away and then as soon as uh, a different leader comes, then that go, then, then, and that's done. I had to do a lot of self-reflection on that, not walk around with my head in the sand and think that what was happening was not happening, uh, but not choosing to go in a corner and not say clearly that it wasn't right, but made sure that my approach um, was the right approach to be inclusive for everyone to have the dialogue about what was happening and why change was needed. So you had to do a lot of persuading, I'm guessing, as part of this process. How did you convince people that this was the direction to go? Uh, I would say that it didn't take a lot of convincing because we started with the strategic plan. Hmm. And so I was very intentional about that because I said, if we get other people to to tell the story, to tell their stories rather, to say this is what I experienced and this is what is happening, and then we found evidence of it, then my story is actually um, telling the stories of others and then telling others that what people were saying was true, but that we had a plan to address it. So it was, yes, we had some, we we did see evidence that performance-based grouping was happening in our district. But what do we do the next year? We dismantle that. We said, no more. No more are we going to do this. And it was tough. I had to have conversations with majority white families in some sense whose kids were benefiting from those classes and who they wanted their students to be in classes, classrooms with um, minority students. However, they didn't want to be in classroom with disruptive minority students. And they believed that certain kids with certain backgrounds were disruptive in the classroom and took away from the learning of their kids. Okay. So uh, that was real, but that's not the way to do it. And we had to teach, you know, it's, we have to make sure that we have teachers and we give our educators the tools to differentiate the learning, to make sure that students understand the expectations because again, students who may be lower level learners can move so much faster with their high level learners peers in the classroom because they're learning they're learning together. So a lot of it was um, our beliefs about learners, beliefs uh, from parents and, and from teachers. 
I want to segue here. You you talk about how you got buy-in from your community. You got buy-in from your board. You've talked a little bit about the training that your staff now needs to be involved in. How do you get people, how do you get your teachers and your staff to not just take the training, but to actually engage with that material and put it into practice? How do you get buy-in internally with all this? That's a great question. And we're still working on it. So we, our equity task team, we reported out to the board last month about how well we're doing and how many people have been in, involved in this work so far and the challenges of it. So one of the things that we want to make sure that it's not a little class that you come and you sit and take, oh, I got to go to diversity training today or equity training today. Okay, I sat, checked it off, and I move on. It's making sure that our administrators and our families and our teachers, everyone understands that we have a diverse population of students who learn differently but have the same potential. Hmm. And they must be nurtured and guided in a very different way from students that may come from various backgrounds and various experience. So, for example... Um, let's go back to the eight, the advanced placement courses. I told you, I, I walked in the classrooms and there were majority of students were white students in those classes. I went to a minority student achievement network meeting and it's a consortium of school districts that work together to close the achievement gaps. So we're in a meeting in Chicago and I shared with them, I said, I need some help with getting more African-American students to take AP. So they introduced me to an organization called Equal Opportunities in Schools, and I partnered with them on a framework of working with our um, high school teachers and identifying students who had the potential of taking AP. They had conversations and surveys with students, and we were able to increase the number of minority students taking AP. We had a summer AP boot camp and we were really, we had an AP pep rally and just really get all the students to say, oh my gosh, you can do it. Your PSAT scores show that you have the potential of taking these courses. Let's get you in. A lot of students were really excited about taking AP. But then in the first few weeks of school the next year, as the courses began, they'd get the syllabus and thwack, they'd see this huge list of requirements for the coming semester all at once. A number of them were overwhelmed and began dropping the courses. So we had to go back and say to the teachers, let's not set a system where kids now are intimidated and afraid because we have set a system to build them up and tell them that they have every right to be in those classes and they have the potential to do just as well as their white peers. But now we've given them their course syllabus and all of their requirements that's very different from what they've had before, and we've intimidated them Hmm. You know, in a subtle way. We didn't say you didn't belong, but we gave you something that we said that this is what you have to do to stay here. So we're still working and having those conversations and making sure that now do we have the right teachers in front of the students who were trying to give uh, more rigor and more access to. So it's ongoing. (laughs) What changes are you seeing? How do you know that what you're doing 
with your efforts to enhance equity in your district are successful? Well, one, we know that from our teachers, we're getting a lot of feedback that they want more training. And that was a aha. And one, the sort of training one module was more, was more about self-identity, reflection of who we are and what we come to the, what we bring to the classroom. And now teachers are saying, you know, we want to dig deeper and learn more about some teaching strategies that will help us because Mm -hmm. that's part of it. Um, So we have this rambunctious child that can't seem to sit down and who's very smart, but because he's so disruptive, I'm at my wit's end. What can I do? And there are, there's some, you know, a lot of literature and strategies of working with rambunctious African-American boys, you know, and maybe it's something that's let's change their seating and get the bouncy balls because they may be a little antsy, you know, it, and they're asking for that. And that is wonderful because they're not feeling, you know, not bad, but just not feeling kind of, you know, awkward asking. Um, and I think that's good. And I think that's, you know, that some change is, is happening because people are not feeling intimidated about asking for resources to help kids that, that, that look different from, uh, from them. How do you go back to the board and report on what you're doing? Oh, report, we report every year. They, and that was part of our policy. We put a, a clause, and I think the board wanted that, that we would come twice a year to report out on how well we're doing and with that equity framework. Hmm. So that, again, and that was a piece that I was so proud of the board because, again, it just wasn't a policy that, that we made sure that we were coming back and revisiting and asking, asking questions and looking at the data, financial data, um, student opportunities, um, access to programs, and how the training is going. I'm sure that this was not a smooth, straight, level road as you put this into practice. What were the biggest hurdles that you had to get over in getting this work up and running? When you're working in a school district where you have two communities, I had two I have two mayors wow. <laughs> and two councils that I'm working um, closely with. And the mayor of, of University Heights did not agree that we had equity issues that needed to be front and center. Um, although it was clear, you know, they didn't have many students attending, but they didn't want to really join us in this work. So part of it is, you know, that, that the political um, landscape. How do you bring up issues or concerns that you know affect your community when your community leaders may not want to be seen as supportive or non-supportive of that issue. Hmm. So that was a, a, a hurdle, that having those conversations with the mayors and the council members and saying, this is real, but in their minds, it wasn't real for them. So I think you have to, that's where you have to have your school board with you to help lead those conversations because those are their um, their peers, the council members are their, are their peers, while you as a leader work one-on-one with hoping that your message resonate with the, the mayors or the city managers. So that was one I didn't anticipate. I think sometimes when you 
think of equity that everyone is going to immediately come on board and say, oh, yeah, we have these issues. Oh, yeah, let's address them. But that's not necessarily the case. So this summer, we three, all three communities and the mayors and the council people are going to participate in a racial equity institute um, training of 100 people that we're going to do a five-hour groundwater training just to talk about the issues of race and inequities and the design of this, you know, of design of uh, racial inequities in, in, in the United States. So it's got a deep training that we are partnering with this organization and going to um, have my board, their boards, and other community leaders join us in this training and the conversation. Yes, yes, yes. I know that lots of district leaders are thinking about this very same issue and care deeply about equity. What have you learned since you started this effort? And and what words of wisdom might you have for people who may just be beginning this work? Mm. I would say you, you have to have the courage to lead the conversations. They will be tough. You have tough conversations. Our equity issues were were front and center evolved around race, but there are other inequities that are happening too when you get to gender. Uh, But they have to have the courage to have the conversations when they see something that doesn't seem right or look right. Have the conversation and then have the courage to, to, to put some things in place. Do your research. Go out and look at articles and go to seminars and reach out to others about um, once I know, then what do I do? Because every community may not say, okay, we're going to put a policy in place. Every community may not do that. Every community teachers organization may not partner and say, okay, we can, you know, we will agree that we need some, you know, this is one of required training. But I think every community would agree that we want what's best for our kids. And if something that we can do differently, let's, have a conversation about it. So I think that's that's big because you're the leader of that organization and again what you permit what you promote and I always also say when you don't respond is also a response. So we have to be clear about our actions and what we are allowing to happen in our organization. Um, because kids are watching, uh, families are watching, people are watching from the outside about what are you going to do? What are you going to do next? Oh, what is he going to do? What is she going to do? And, and, it, and is it right for kids? Well, my guest today has been Dr. Talisa Dixon, superintendent of Cleveland Heights University Heights School District in Ohio. Dr. Dixon, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, thank you. It's been a great opportunity. And yes, I, I, I appreciate you asking and, and digging in this area that, and I hope that the information that we've uh, I've talked about today, that and the things that I've shared would help other district leaders um, have a conversation with their communities about something that's definitely so important. Did you know new episodes of Field Trip are released every two weeks? Don't miss a single one. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Field Trip is a podcast from Frontline Education. Frontline's industry-leading software is designed exclusively for K-12 and is built to help school systems recruit, hire, engage, develop, and retain their employees. For more information, visit frontlineeducation.com 
slash fieldtrippodcast. For Frontline Education, I'm Ryan Estes. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Thank you.